Hello everyone and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast, where we chat everything and anything related to the world of music and occasionally focus on topics a little bit unrelated. My name is Scott Kelly. I am a drummer turned comedy singer-songwriter and apparently now a podcaster. You're going to hear me chat to many different people, but more often than not, it will be fellow musicians having conversations about their careers and lives within arguably the greatest art form in the world. And you get this for free each and every week on scottcowie.com, on Stitcher Radio, and now on iTunes. So please rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, let them know what's going on over here. But for now, enjoy the show. What a podcast we have for you. Occasionally we go way off topic on the Talk Music Podcast and this week is one of those episodes. We have none other than Agent John Kitzinger, the unit chief of the Violent Crime Unit as part of the FBI. Also we have George Johnson who's a subject matter expert on the laser campaign. The FBI, of course, have been running this campaign for a while now and George is going to give us a lowdown on exactly what's happening. Big thank you to Molly Halpern for sorting out these interviews. The FBI have been incredibly helpful for making sure this podcast goes ahead and these interviews are in place. Absolutely amazing that they can make this happen. Very helpful indeed, so I'm extremely grateful. A couple of things before we get to the interview. I am playing the drums with Sandy Tom for her DVD launch in London on the 20th of November. Tickets are on sale. They're going quick, so check out my website, which of course is scottcowie.com, to get information on tickets. Get yourself down there. It's going to be absolutely brilliant. But for now, let's go straight to the interview. It's going to be a good one. Okay, I am back on the Talk Music Podcast with Agent John Kitzinger, um, the Unit Chief of the Violent Crime Unit. How are you today, John? I'm very good, thank you. Excellent. Now, tell me a little bit about your role, first of all, in the FBI. Okay, so uh, my title is I'm the Unit Chief of the Violent Crime Unit, and the Violent Crime Unit is uh, responsible for program management for the violent crime program for the 56 FBI field offices across the United States. And then within those uh, 56 field offices, there are 38 uh, violent crime task forces. So we uh, are responsible for program management of, uh, of that program. Superb. Now, uh, a large topic of discussion um, when the FBI crops up, of course, is the most wanted list. Someone who's been added very recently on the most wanted list is Eric Matthew Frame. Can you tell us about this man and, of course, the incident itself that brought him to the FBI's attention? Yeah, so the, the incident uh, occurred on September 12th in uh, the Philadelphia field office in, in a, uh, uh, an area in uh, Pike County. Uh, Mr. Frame is, is wanted by the Pennsylvania State Police for uh, a shooting that occurred at the Pennsylvania State Police Barracks in Blooming Grove, uh, PA. Uh, the incident involved uh, late at night, approximately 11, 11 p.m., there were a number of gunshots that occurred at the entrance of the State Police Barracks. Uh, one state trooper was uh, fatally shot and a second one was uh, was shot as well. So Mr. Freend is wanted by the uh, Pennsylvania State Police for the murder and attempted murder of two Pennsylvania State Troopers. Uh, the FBI is assisting with that investigation. Uh, and uh, within about a week after that uh, incident, uh, 
the FBI put Mr. Freen on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. Right, okay. Um, obviously, you're referring to the list there. Uh, once again, a, a topic of a lot of discussion and intrigue generally from the public. Um, one thing that's not mentioned on the website, and I couldn't find this information anywhere, um, was to who uh, determines the sum of money um, granted for information on the subjects and the, the, or the suspects, sorry, in the most wanted list. Um, how does that decision generally take place? So, the, the uh, when you get... Uh, Placed on the top 10 most wanted list, there's automatically a $100,000 reward that is offered by the FBI for information that leads to the arrest of that subject. Right, okay. And um, there are um, so many differing reports on this. Um, now, as far as someone being put on the waiting list, is it due to the severity of the crime? Is it amount of time that the criminal has been active generally? Is it a mixture of both? Um, can you talk us through that? Yeah, so, so generally, uh, when we make the decision to put someone on the list, uh, they're wanted for a, a, a crime you know, that's serious. Uh, you know, we, we consider the worst of the worst offenders. It's always a significant criminal act, oftentimes crimes of violence. Uh, the length of time, that, that would vary. Uh, we've had some that you know, it took years before we put them on the list, others you know, in, a, in a shorter period of time. Uh, as I mentioned, for this specific subject, Frying, uh, it was a little, approximately a week uh, when he went on the list. Uh, yeah, so what, what generally what we, what we do when we have an opening, we'll canvas our field offices. As I mentioned, there's 56 field offices across the United States. So we'll send out a canvas requesting you know, their input for who they consider the worst uh, subjects that are being sought by law enforcement in their territory. So that would come to us uh, at my unit, the violent crime unit here at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. So we'll review that list uh, and then we'll make recommend recommendations for executive management here at the FBI. And it'll go all the way up to the deputy director level uh, when a final decision is made. So, it, it, again, to get back to your question, it, it, it's really the seriousness of the, of the crime. Uh, and then uh, we look for, uh, you know, by putting them on the list, we're really asking for the public's assistance. So it's a partnership that we have with the media. So we're, we're, we're looking for uh, cases in which that media attention is going gonna, is gonna to assist us in apprehending this subject. Now, I'm so glad that I've got an opportunity to speak to yourself today because as you can imagine, or as you probably know even better than me, there's so much misinformation out there uh, regarding the FBI and a whole host of things generally. Um, there's a lot of differing reports on how long Osama bin Laden uh, was on the most wanted list even prior to 9-11. I wonder if you can clear this up and, um, and secondly tell us how much information uh, the FBI had on bin Laden um, prior to that particular crime and of course September 2000, 2001. Yeah, so Osama bin Laden, obviously he was one of our more infamous subjects that was on the list. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really not at liberty to discuss specifics about the Osama bin Laden investigation. That's obviously a little bit different than, you know, most of the subjects on our list who were wanted for, uh, you know, more, more domestic local crimes. Uh, as far as when he was put on the list, I'd have to defer to the public affairs people here specifically. But obviously, he was on the list for for a few years, and it you know he obviously uh, that was successful. He was he was 
not apprehended, but he was located, and uh, and that case was uh, was resolved favorably. Now, apart from the likes of Osama bin Laden, has there um, been a fugitive that springs to mind that for all the great work that the FBI does, um, someone that's generally managed to somehow keep under the radar um, and it becomes almost impossible to get any information on him or her? Is there anyone that springs to mind at all? Well, uh, I mean, there are some fugitives on the list who tend to be more difficult to apprehend than others. Uh, but, you know, I would not say that Locating any fugitive is impossible. Uh, so uh, there's, you know, the, 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 by placing on the top ten, I mean it is literally a nationwide uh, media campaign to locate him. It's not international, and uh, tips come in all the time. So even though someone's on the list a long time, uh, it may appear as though there's no investigation that's going on that we can't locate him. But I can assure you that every tip that comes in. You know, the FBI working in partnership with local and international law enforcement, we're pursuing all those leads all the time and we never give up. Great stuff. Now, we'll talk a little bit about a couple of people that are on the list at the moment. Um, I hope I get the, the, the gentleman's name correct, uh, and no doubt you'll correct me if I'm getting this wrong. Um, Victor Manuel Grina. Um, now, this is uh, one that's interesting to me because the incident took place... Um, circa 31 years ago. Um, can you talk to us um, about this individual and the incident itself? Sure. So that was an a incident that happened in 1983 in our uh, New Haven, uh, Connecticut field office. Uh, he was He's wanted for the armed robbery of a uh, armored car service in which uh, approximately $7 million was stolen. Uh, and you're right, he's been on the list for a long time. And that's an example, though, of, uh, of someone that remains on the list until he's captured. And, you know, if, as leads come in, even though it's been 30-plus you know, years, we continue to pursue and investigate aggressively every one of those leads. Now, someone else is on the list. Um, again, I hope I'm getting his name correct. Semyon, um, I, I don't know if you can pronounce it for me, um, the, the, a Russian gentleman um, who's now on the list, a, a crime boss, of course. Can you pronounce his name for me? Is that okay? So that would be Simeon Mogilevich. That's the one, yeah. Yeah. So he's been on the list. Uh, he, he was put on the list in 2003. Uh, so it, it's, he's been on the list a, a, a while. He's wanted for uh, a financial uh, fraud crime in excess of $150 million. Uh, and another individual where you know, there have been uh, extensive efforts to locate Mr. Mogilevich, which are still ongoing. Well, fingers crossed we can get to, um, you guys can get to the bottom of that. There's a couple of really good documentaries. Um, very interesting indeed, and fingers crossed um, something will, will come of that. Um, now, news just in the other day, the FBI proposed a new theory that William Bradford Bishop Jr. Um, is, had never actually left the rural, rural south, or perhaps has not left the rural south. Can you explain a little bit about this? Okay, so, so that's, a, that's a theory. Uh, he was wanted for... A really horrific crime that occurred in 1976. He uh, he bludgeoned to death his his wife, his mother, and his three children, young children. Uh, he took their bodies from uh, where he resided in Montgomery County in Maryland, which isn't far from where we are right now in Washington D.C. And he drove them to uh, a, a federal uh, park in uh, uh, North Carolina. 
And there he, he buried them in a shallow grave and set their, their bodies on fire. Uh, there have been, there was a massive uh, fugitive investigation that, that, uh, that was undertaken, you know, immediately after that crime. Uh, it wasn't until years until recently where he was, he was actually put on the 10 most wanted in this, this past April of, uh, 2014. Uh, the theory that you're referring to is, uh, because of the media attention that, that, that the case received, uh, there was an individual in, uh, Scottsboro, Alabama, who recalled a person that they had buried back in, uh, 1991. Uh, and that person was a, a, a John Doe. They didn't know the identity of that person. Uh, they had taken a photograph of them. He was buried, uh, and it was the media attention that really triggered that, that the the memory of, of that individual. And they believed it was you know, potentially was Bradford Bishop. So the only way to really determine if it is him is to exhume the the the, the, the coffin and then do the proper. Uh, scientific test to see that it, it is in fact bishop or not. And that, those tests take a few weeks, so we're we're waiting the outcome of that. Now the FBI have even started using podcasting to create an awareness and help keep the the, the public safe in general from fugitives. And um, just how helpful has the internet been to the FBI and hopefully making life uh, for fugitives even more difficult um, going forward? Well, I mean, it's extremely difficult to become a fugitive today because of all the the, the different media outlets that we have today. Uh, I mean, the news in and of itself today is a 24-hour news cycle, and people uh, are able to consume the, the, the news you know, 24 hours a day, and especially the Internet. They can consume it you know, when they want to. So the Internet is a, is a very powerful tool to allow us to communicate with the public and really to get them to communicate with us. So the podcast, the internet, it's all been, you know, tr- it's a tremendous benefit to us. From a publicity standpoint, can you tell me about the process when someone's put onto the, the wanted list? How does the FBI begin to bring that to everyone's attention? You mentioned a couple outlets there, but what's generally the process? Yeah. So, so generally when you, uh, when a decision is made that you become, uh, we're going to put you on the top 10 most wanted list. Uh, I mentioned there are 56 field offices. So our office of public affairs will coordinate with the field office and, uh, oftentimes the local authorities there as well. Cause these individuals not only sometimes are wanted for federal crimes, but you know, local crimes, they'll coordinate and they'll do a, uh, uh, you know, press conference, uh, and it'd be a full media blitz. Uh, really just educating the public about the seriousness of the crime, the commitment, the partnership between federal and local law enforcement, you know, our efforts to locate them, uh, advertising the reward campaign. You know, we, most of these crimes are so horrific that you, you would expect people would just call in you know, because they want to do the right thing and help law enforcement. But there is an incentive for people. So we offer a reward, uh, if, if not for, for anything else, that they would, they would provide information you know, that would lead to that individual's capture. So it's really that press conference which which initiates it. And then, as you mentioned, the Internet and their picture is plastered everywhere on digital billboards and the Internet. And then we'll do, depending on, you know, like today, we'll do uh, media interviews in addition to the press conference. Everything and anything we can do to, to get the word out and educate the, the, the public and the world at large that we're looking for this person. 
There has been one individual um, who had been on the wanted list for only two hours, uh, which definitely speaks volumes for the FBI and how quickly the word can get out. Has there ever been an incident of perhaps complete luck that a fugitive has been caught? Well, you mentioned uh, the person that was on there for two hours, and uh, that, that was years ago, that, that, that person. But I could tell you a more recent one was one that we put on the list in uh, just this past March. His name was Juan uh, Garcia, and it was in our New York field office. He was a member of a violent uh, street gang, MS-13, in the New York area. Uh, and the, the crime he was wanted for, he had lured his, uh, his, his girlfriend – who was with her two-year-old son, he lured her to an area, isolated park with some other gang members, uh, and they assassinated her and her two-year-old son. That happened, that crime happened in 2010. Uh, he was put on the top 10 most wanted in March of this past year, 2014. And we had information, we believed that he was in Central America, and we focused our efforts very aggressively with our media campaign in that part of the world. And Within, uh, I believe it was within a day or two, uh, he had surrendered himself because of that, you know, that that media attention. Uh, you know, he uh, he self surrendered to to law enforcement in Nicaragua. So, uh, just a, a great example of how you know, working with our our international partners and and through the media and 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 the public. I mean, he. He was. He knew that that, that was going to be a massive manhunt. There was a hundred thousand dollar reward for him, uh, and he uh, he chose to surrender himself. So I don't know if it's if it's if I would say you know dumb luck. I mean that when we put someone on the list, they know that they're not coming off of that list until we capture them. So uh, you know that's a, that's one of the more recent ones that I can bring to your attention that someone that was on the list but but for a very short period of time. Um, does that happen quite a lot, John, fugitives turning themselves in? Is that quite common? I mean, it, it has happened. Uh, it's hard to be a fugitive. You know, so uh, some, some individuals will, 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 will choose to surrender because the pressure of being a fugitive is too much for them and they'll, you know, surrender themselves. But, uh, you know, others will uh, make it more difficult for us. And that's, that's where we, you know, rely on the public's assistance and the media to, to get the word out and make the world a smaller place for them so we can apprehend them and bring them to justice. Absolutely. Now, last question. Just out of interest, who's been the youngest person on the most wanted list? Uh, you know, the youngest person, I believe, was 18 years old, and that was a long time ago. Uh, yeah, so the youngest person is a person by the name of David Sylvan Fine who was 18 years old in five months. Uh, and that uh, crime occurred in September of 1970. Wow. I can tell you, though, again, going back to the more recent one, generally they're not that young uh, because, you know, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's normally a very significant crime that they've committed. Uh, so we don't see people that young committing those types of crimes. Uh, however, the, the one I mentioned with Juan Garcia – he was 21 when he was put on the 10 most wanted, and that was in uh, March of, of 2014 again. But the crime he committed was four years earlier when he was 17 years old. So there are, there's all uh, types of ages. The oldest person on the list, the other extreme to that would have been the uh, infamous gangster, Irish gangster from, New, from Boston, uh, Whitey Bulger, who was captured a few years ago. 
And listen, that's very, very informative. Well, actually, let me correct myself. Uh, Bishop, he's the oldest one that was captured. Bishop would be, he's, I believe Bishop is 78 years old right now. So we're still actively looking for him, but the oldest that was captured would have been Whitey Bulger. In fact, John, one last question. What advice would you give to someone who plans on perhaps having a career in the FBI? So uh, so a young person that's interested in career in the FBI, the background that the FBI looks for is your educational background. You have to be a college graduate. Uh, the average age for an agent position would be approximately 30 years old, even though you're 23 is the earliest that you can be accepted. Uh, but what the FBI looks for, in addition to your academic background, is your work history, your professional work history. Uh, but when, I, when young people ever ask me about you know, preparing for a career in the FBI, I always tell them it, 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 it starts like as soon as you're really – in high school, because it's all about the, the the friends that you associate with, your character. I mean, that's the most important thing. Is you know, it's your character. When you're when you apply with the FBI, there is an extensive background investigation. So you know, when you're young, you know, sometimes people make stupid mistakes. You know, but if you wanted to get hired by the FBI years later, those kind of mistakes are going to are going to uh, be detrimental to your your efforts. So it really starts with, with the people that you associate with and just really building that, that good moral character from your youngest age. Uh, and then all the other things, you know, academic background, professional, your career. But that in and of itself will not get you hired by the FBI. In addition to having all those great, you know, work uh, skills and academic uh, uh, credentials is really good, strong, moral character. And, uh, you know, that's the advice I give to young people all the time when they already speak to me about, about becoming an FBI agent or an FBI employee. That's superb, John. Listen, thank you very much for all your great information. Very, very informative indeed uh, to do with the FBI, the most wanted list. A lot covered, so thank you very much for all your input. Thank you. Fantastic interview there with Agent John Kitzinger. Coming up, we have George Johnson, subject matter expert on the laser campaign. But for just now, I'm going to advertise some of our previous episodes. Previous episodes. On episode one, we had Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols. Episode two, we had Huey Morgan from the Fun Loving Criminals. A week later, we had Sandy Tom. Then we had Brian Ray from Paul McCartney's band. Orianti was in episode 5. A week later we had Bob Jacobs, who's the head spokesman from NASA. Then we had Dr. Phil Toll, who's Metallica's therapist. Then we had the Grahams from Wet Wet Wet. The following week we had Andy McKee, then Steve Craddock, then Cliff Goldmacher, Steve White, Martin Taylor MBE. The following week we had Stuart Copeland, then Dweezil Zappa, Martin Harley, Julian Lennon, Carol Kay, Tommy Emmanuel, Kaki King, John Gom, Nick West, Thomas Lang, followed by Rhonda Smith, then we had Glenn Sobel, then we had Ailey McKellar, followed by Jennifer Batten, the legendary bass player Larry Gray was in episode 29, episode 30 we had Newton Faulkner and Jack Bruce, 31 we had Antoine Dufour, then Vivi Rama, Warren Hurt, Jeff Friedel, Janine Leah, Robert John and the Wreck, Raquel Plass, Ted McKenna, Steve Gadd, Dan Wilson was in episode 40 and of course this week 
right here, right now, with Agent John Kitzinger and, of course, George Johnson. All episodes are available at scottkerry.com, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, SoundCloud. Subscribe, and it comes directly to your phone each and every week. Okay, I am back on the Talk Music Podcast with George Johnson, who is a subject matter expert in the laser campaign. How are you today, George? I'm fine, thank you. Now, can you explain a little bit, give us a bit more detail here on your role specifically? Certainly. I'm a supervisory federal air marshal detailed to FBI, Criminal Investigative Division. Uh, I work transportation crimes, and one of the, the primary items in my portfolio are laser strikes directed at commercial aircraft. Now, when did the dangers of lasing start becoming such a huge issue? Well, theoretically, they date back to the mid-1990s. In 1995, there were approximately 52 reported laser strikes in the Las Vegas area. Um, Over half of these had significant adverse effects against pilots, and primarily during critical phases of flight, which would be below 10,000 feet. Now, was there a particular incident that really brought this campaign to the forefront? Was it a series of incidents? Talk us through that process. Certainly. Well, from 1995 through 2005, we had knowledge of incidents, but the FAA, in conjunction with us, started tracking laser incidents aggressively in 2005. And from 2005 through the end of 2013, there was over a 1,100% increase and laser strikes. Um, as a result of that extremely high trend, um, approximately a year and a half, two years ago, we began discussing what the FBI could do to aggressively um, attack these incidents and try to rein them in if you will. Now, can you tell us about some of the incidents themselves, the ones that got a little bit of media attention? Um, can you explain a bit of detail about that? Sure. Um, The the most important thing to underscore is that with roughly 11 incidents a day all last year and between nine and nine and a half this year, uh, it would be very difficult to describe each and every one of these incidents. But what I can tell you is that uh, the majority of of these incidents occur in the critical phases of flight. That's 10,000 feet and below. And during those times in the aircraft, the FAA assesses that even taking a drink of water out of a bottle of water is a safety violation. So you can imagine trying to fly an aircraft essentially blind any time during those periods. We we take all of those incidents very seriously. Very interesting indeed. Now you've worked with members of the UK's Metropolitan Sussex Police on this topic. Um, Can you tell us about that? Of course. We've been working with them closely for the past two years approximately. We've been attempting to harmonize our efforts and share best practices. And roughly uh, four or five months ago, uh, members of the U- uh, Metropolitan and Sussex Police came to visit us here at FBI headquarters. And we're planning a visit, uh, hopefully in November, to um, continue sharing lessons learned, in particular, underscoring our successes in our uh, national and regional laser awareness efforts. How many individuals do you have working on the campaign to try and solve the issue generally? I don't have an exact number, but what I can tell you is that the FBI has 56 field offices, and each field office has what are called airport liaison agents that work over 450 
TSA federalized airports around the nation. So there are, there are hundreds of people involved in this effort. And each airport that has um, a large enough footprint will have a TSA screener population and will have FBI agents responsible for handling laser cases that occur at, at the airports in those areas. If you can, can you give us a list of some of the campaign's success stories so far? Well, there have been numerous reports um, to all of our field offices. We don't, we don't comment on um, individuals that have requested or, or um, given information. Um, however, we can comment on the fact that um, there have been a number of arrests uh, during the, the reward period and a number of significant prosecutions. Um, our, our campaign had two stages. We had a regional effort that started in on the 11th of February, 2014, then lasted approximately 60 days. And then because that campaign was so successful, we launched um, a national initiative that went from the 3rd of November to the 3rd of, I'm sorry, from the 3rd of June to the 3rd of September. Um, and throughout this, uh, throughout the campaign, we've had a number of uh, very significant prosecutions. Uh, in March of this year, Sergio Patrick Rodriguez um, was given a 14-year sentence for aiming uh, a laser pointer at an aircraft. We have two violations um, that a subject can be charged under, uh, the first of which is 18 U.S.C. 32 Alpha, and that has a, uh, a maximum of a 20-year penalty and a $250,000 uh, civil fine uh, associated with it. And then we have 18 U.S.C. 39 Alpha, which is a statute um, specifically uh, for aiming a laser pointer at an aircraft. And individuals charged under that statute can get up to five years in prison and also a $250,000 fine. Now, these little laser pointers, laser pens that you're referring to, you can buy them in shops in America for only a few dollars. Um, now, due to, um, due to the constant crimes that are being committed, has there ever been any efforts made to prevent or just police the, the sales of these pens or create more awareness generally when consumers are purchasing the lasers? Is there anything like that taking place? Well, the laser manufacturers are cooperating uh, to a certain extent, and they are putting labels on their lasers indicating that they should not illuminate aircraft, they should not point them at anyone's eyes. Uh, so that's taking place. We've also worked in a number of um, air, FBI areas of operation where we've given out uh, literature to laser um, distributors and, and stores. And additionally, certain jurisdictions, for example, Ocean City, Maryland, um, and other uh, tourist destinations have passed civil ordinances where they prohibit the sale of lasers in boardwalk settings um, and in particular near, um, near airports. Now there's some people out there who suggest that shining a laser pen doesn't warrant jail time, um, but is it not fair to say that the FBI is doing everything in its power to heighten the public's awareness of this and generally the seriousness of the crime? Well, I. I'd like to think that we are doing as, as much as possible. We have a number of um, uh, public affairs efforts underway um, that are going to continue to heighten the information. But as far as the those individuals who would comment that uh, illuminating an aircraft or any motorized conveyance with a laser doesn't warrant jail time, I can only ask you 
how would you feel if you were driving through a busy intersection and someone either shined a flashlight in your eyes or put a bag over your head and forced you to continue driving for uh, an extended period of time without any knowledge of your surroundings? Absolutely. Well, George, listen, that's been very, very informative indeed. Thanks for all your help today. My pleasure. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Fantastic interviews with, of course, George Johnson and John Kitzinger. Thanks once again to Molly for, for sorting out those interviews. Really, really appreciate it. What can you say? We branch out, we interview people from the FBI, we interview the head spokesman from NASA. It's not just a music podcast, we do like to branch out. Ron, our producer, is right with me right now. How are we, Ron? I'm good, Scott. How are you? You know me, Ron. Can't complain, never do. Because I plan on tomorrow night, if you're listening to this episode when it goes out on Thursday, ladies and gentlemen, Ron has a gig tomorrow night. Tomorrow being the... I'm stalling because I'm getting the calendar on my iPhone to tell you guys that it's the... the what day is it, Ron? 26th. 24th. 20, I'm looking at December. 24th. 24th. That's why that I can't figure that out. 24th of October, and I'm not stopping this to start it again because okay. I can't be bothered editing this. 24th of October, Ron, tells us about the gig. Come forth here so we can get you on this microphone and tell us all about it. It's in the Buff Club. Which band? Talk to me. Yeah, it's in the Buff Club. Uh, it's the band I'm in called Smile and Regret. Um, and we're actually doing a Halloween-themed gig. Oh. So we're all dressing up, getting our faces painted because Halloween's only a week after that. Um, I don't know if the other band's playing or we dressed up, but we certainly will be. Well, um, we're I, going to put on a show. What are you going to dress up as? Uh, I'm going to dress up as a zombie because, you know, um, I can pop my out and have like a fake one dangling down and it'll look even realer. If you're realer, it's a word. I think it is now. Well, it is now. It's in it when, now. When, you, uh, when you, if it's not, a, 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 I mean, how do they define a real world word? Not world. By the way, we're not drunk when we're doing this podcast. We're completely sober. And as anybody that knows me knows that I don't drink, but we're struggling with our pronunciation of these different words. Um, they determine a real word by, as soon as it's said on this podcast, we don't use the dictionary anymore. If it's on Scott's podcast, it's real, it's authentic, it is what it is. So Ron is playing at the Buff Club tomorrow night, ladies and gentlemen. He's going to be dressed like a zombie with his eye out. If that doesn't intrigue you, I don't know what on earth will. ScottKiwi.com for all your podcast and vodcast needs. You can also check out the vodcast series. You're currently listening to the podcast, aka audio. The vodcast includes Carol Kay, Dave Lombardo, Nathan East, Definity Rocks. The interviews are all coming up. You've got to check it out. The central place that holds all this together is ScottKiwi.com. Add me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. Follow Ron as well. I'm going to put information up about Ron's gig on my website because I'm a good guy. So go and check out Ron tomorrow night. He's got his eye hanging out. He's got his um, zombie outfit at the ready. Thanks to the, everybody from the FBI and we will see you guys next week. Never thought I'd say that, Ron. Thanks to everybody from the FBI. That felt pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs>